everybody. This is Stephanie Rupert. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Meaning of Everything podcast, where we entertain truly revolutionary ideas. Today is episode number 25, and I'm going to be having on Connor Wood, a researcher who recently proposed a new theory about why people tend to believe in gods. Now, I say tend to believe in gods, um, but that's really a simplification, right? Uh, There's a whole lot of various theories and different kinds of beliefs and things that we can believe in that are similar to gods or what have you in religions. And we we will get to that in due course. But I am very happy to be exploring this topic with you and with Connor today. There are many different theories about why people tend to have what we normally think of as religious beliefs. And Connor has a really nice grasp of these different theories and also in proposing his own, I think has really unearthed some fascinating insights about who we are as a species and and why we function the way that we do. Now, I happen to have known Connor for a very long time. He was doing his PhD at Boston University, which he has now completed while I was doing my master's degree there. And I think I and the people, all the other people in the community as well, understood that Connor has a particularly unique ability to theorize abstractly and understand the human condition on a very general and insightful level, while at the same time engage really good scientific practices. And I think this is why he has been able to not just understand this field quite well, but also to make a really unique and important contribution to it. Now, if you're not really interested in the question of why people are religious, say, what if you simply believe, right? We're asking the question, why do people believe in gods? You very mal white think, well, because gods are real, right? I believe in God because God is real. That's, that's, a valid, you know, that's a valid answer, but what we're doing here in the study of religion, what I do when I study religion and Connor as well, is to look for other explanations and just take a step back and say, well, okay, so that might be an answer and that is a plausible, that remains a plausible explanation, but also can we account for why humans do this in a biological way, a psychological way, an anthropological way, a sociological way, right? Can we look at commonalities that we witness across human cultures and sort of tie the strings together to make sense of this phenomena and how it might have arisen in human history and how and why it functions the way that it does today. And it's all really deeply fascinating, important stuff to be thinking about when we want to understand religion, when we want to understand who we are as a species, when we want to understand our institutions. And, and to reiterate, and I, I find religion quite fascinating. And so it is all just quite fascinating. So Connor and I, I actually, we just spoke, Connor and I talk for a long time. So I should get to it just to tell you a little bit about his background. He is currently a researcher, a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute for Mind and Culture. I believe I got that correct. Um, for Mind and Culture in Boston, which has some affiliations with, but is not uh, officially affiliated with Boston University. Connor got his PhD at Boston University in religious studies, um, and specifically in the scientific study of religion. Previously, he studied creative writing at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Connor's interests include the intersection of religion and ideology, religion and science, evolution, and ritual theory. Connor's recent academic work has focused on signaling theory and self-regulation in religious groups. He is now working intensively on this new set of theories about belief. He's also written several encyclopedia articles, and this is what it says in his Huffington Post profile, on shamanism and one shared vodka with a German-speaking shaman in Mongolia. Connor is a fantastic guest, and I am super excited uh, to have on this brilliant doctor. So here we are, Dr. Connor Wood. Hi, Dr. Connor Wood. How are you? I'm good, Stephanie. How about you? <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm good. You're, I'm feeling, no, I was going to say I'm feeling nostalgic for Boston because you're, you're in the area. Um, but, but I'm, but I'm, but I'm not, I never really, I never really took to the place. I'm happy that you're happy there. 
Yeah, not everybody, not everybody digs Boston. No, it's, I think it's people have very polarized feelings about it, you know? Yeah, my, my impression is that people who live in the Austin area for grad school or, or um, <laughs> undergrad end up hating Boston, and then those of us who move to Jamaica Plain or one of the other neighborhoods end up finding them. I lived in Cambridge for three years. Yeah, maybe it just wasn't. Okay, that's right. It was my fault. I was, I was not, I was not a good resident. Um, anyway, so you're, um, you have a research position currently in Boston. Yes, I am a research associate at the Center for Mind and Culture, which is an independent research center uh, in the Kenmore Square area right near Boston University. And although it's independent, a lot of us are affiliated with Boston University. Okay, yes, that was going to be my next question. Has it, how long has it been there? Why do I not know it exists? It's been there for two years. Okay. And you don't know it exists because... It's been there it, for two years? <laughs> yeah, it's, really, it's pretty new. It was the sort, it's sort of become the umbrella institution for what used to be the Institute for the Biocultural Study of Religion, which I think, you know, you remember um, from BU days. But... Um, the leadership at the center gained other research interests beyond just the scientific study of religion. And so there was a research center. A research center seemed like a good way to house certain kinds of research while also making room for more broadly, you know, things like social simulation research, cultural psychology, um, and, and broader research topics. Right, that's cool, but harder to get grants for than being in a university, right? You have to find your own money. Yeah, yeah. Funding is always a challenge, as anybody who's tried to wade through the muck and mire of academia knows, unless they're really lucky. <laughs> What's that? I said, not me. I remember asking you once about funding or, or something, and you said, well, yeah, I, I got to apply for grants consistently, and I was like, peace, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not fun. Of course, applying for a grant takes, I mean, I applied for an NSF grant one time in, in grad school to try and um, get funding for a project. And it was probably the third most intensive project I did in all of graduate school after my dissertation and my master's thesis. I mean, it's just dozens and dozens and dozens of hours and paperwork and rewriting and rewriting. So yeah, I don't blame you. Did you but get the grant? I did not get that grant. No, no, I'm correct. <laughs> yeah, that's. Yeah, I mean, it's like throwing pennies into an open manhole. Yeah. Wow. Sometimes, not to discourage people. Uh, I'm so sorry. And P.S. As I have said already many times, Connor's brilliant. So, it's just proof of how punishing the process is. We've actually decided recently, yesterday, we were talking about this at the center. We decided it might be a good idea to start pinning up all of the things that we've got rejected from on the, on the sort of the, uh, the bulletin board and the hangout area in the research center so that everybody gets, get, it gives you momentum to say, all right, I got rejected from this journal. It's time to submit to the next one, to the next one, to the next one, and to realize that it's not about the rejections. It's about putting yourself out there. Hmm. I, that is very healthy. I'm still glad I'm not doing it. <laughs> um, okay, so I was just saying, I was just saying to people that I have always admired the way that you are able to parse information in, in the field of religion so clearly. And I love, I love that you take insights from the humanities and then are still able to study them with a, you know, with a scientific lens. I think that that's, kind of what we need in the study of religion and other and other institutions and so i definitely i want to jump into belief specifically but could you talk a little bit about your experiences of trying to study religion in a scientific way wow yes um <laughs> in less than 10 hours <laughs> yeah that's the problem um I have a port an oil portrait of William James over my desk at work. Yeah. <laughs> and I, that that's be, because his William James is a he was for assuming most of your viewers know who he was but um he was a American philosopher and psychologist 
in the late 19th and really early 20th centuries who founded American pragmatism and kind of got the ball rolling on scientific approaches to religion. But he himself wasn't, um, he wasn't a cold-eyed atheist or anything like that either. I mean, he wasn't religious in a traditional sense, but he was able to sort of piston back and forth between trying to see things sympathetically from the inside and then switch out just to view them objectively and to and be really rigorous in a sort of empirical play-by-play account of how social or psychological phenomena come to be. So his, his great work of psychology, the principles of psychology, is this awesome window into how somebody can look inside and then look outside and do both rigorously. And so I try to do that myself. Um, and I won't lie, it's hard. Uh, every time I read and you know, the, the public, every time I read in some sort of venue like the Huffington Post or um, New York Times, uh, some scientist who says, oh, my science, my science work doesn't conflict at all with my faith. They, they exist um, totally side by side. I always think, man, you're lucky. You know, it's, <laughs> it's hard to, um, and not just religious faith. I think it's just hard to be a person who lives in a story with populated with other characters in a story and also be a scientist who breaks apart the world into radiocinated cause and effect. It's, it, you know, there's a neuroscientist named Anthony Jack at Case Western. I think he's at Case Western who does really cool work. Maybe, yeah, maybe you've talked about him who on um, the cognitive systems that do sort of physical processing, that is, that try and understand physical cause and effect, mechanistic um, mechanisms in, in the spatio-temporal world, and those that try and understand the social world. And they're actually mutually inhibitive. So when you are trying to understand, okay, why is this person I'm talking with um, giving me that look instead of this look, or, you know, why didn't that person call me or why did that, right? You're thinking about people and you're thinking teleologically, you're thinking about their purposes and their goals. That actually down, downshifts the, the networks in your brain that think about cause and effect um, in, a, in a non-teleological, just an efficient causation sense and mm-hmm. vice versa. So when you're just, so a great example of this is in towards the end of his life, Charles Darwin complained that he couldn't really appreciate poetry anymore because he spent his whole, he'd spent the last 50 years of his life just kind of breaking the world apart into theories, into bits that could be related to one another through networks of causation. And I think I'm rambling and I'm sure you'll cut a lot of this, but that's all right. Um, Because I, (laughs) you know, I think that that's a real, that's a real struggle for, for those of us who try and see the world objectively and empirically, but who also want to live full, rich human lives. I don't think it's impossible at all. And that's not really what you asked about. You kind of asked about like what, how to study religion and uh, in both ways. Um, but I'm getting to it in a roundabout way, which is to say, I think it's totally possible. It's just really hard. And it's one of those things that's um, like, I don't know, grad school is really hard and it's, doable too at the same time, right? Like there are things that are just hard and you have to do them. So I think applying that to religion, um, I think a lot of the best scholars of religion are people who have been able to kind of go in and out from um, a humanistic point of view to a pretty rigorous empirical or scientific point of view. Roy Rappaport is an example. He was uh, an American anthropologist who wrote some of the greatest anthropology of religion ever written probably one of the first people to introduce cybernetics and systems theory into the anthropology of religion. But you could tell he also really understood the way that ritual worked internally to people's lives in a sympathetic way. And his work would never have been as good if he hadn't had that internal view. So I try to do that. And it's a bit like trying to stride a chasm, you know, where you've got one leg on one side and one leg on the other. But um, I think it does produce the best insights. I think that's actually kind of a nice lead into the work that you're doing that I want to get to in a roundabout way, because you do, you're sort of proposing a new theory. And I was telling people about it over drinks the other night, because, you know, that's, that's what you do. And 
in university towns, you go out for drinks and you theorize. And I was telling them, I was like, no, no, no. See, you always had a problem with this hyperactive agency theory, but let me tell you about this solution that I have, you know? And, and people thought it was cool because I know a lot of people who also have been looking for a way to tie the social into this. So anyway, I think that you have been able to take this straddling that you do, I think quite elegantly, um, into, into these theories about religious belief. So I, sh I should leave that there because I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about belief. There are a ton of different theories that you can distill into a few different categories, right? For why people tend to believe in gods and stuff. And I, you have said in a blog post that there are elements of truth or likely there are elements of truth in all of them. And I really appreciate that. And so I'm wondering, and this is going to take you a really long time to answer and we can go bit by bit, but let's, let's talk about all the, all the theories for why people believe what they believe and yours later, if you want. Oh boy. Sure. Um, <laughs> I sounded very Midwestern. Oh boy. Don't you know? Um, so there's, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. Okay. Let's, so many. let's start with hyperactive agency. Cause that one is talked about a lot. Sure. Can you tell so, us about that theory? So, um, yeah. So there, there's a theory, um, ish called the hyperactive agency detection device, um, theory. It's called different things, but that's one of them. Um, had with two D's that this theory sort of posits that the, the human brain is designed by evolution to over intuit agency and per, uh, purposive behavior in the environment around us in order to avoid um, type two errors of sort of uh, failing to attribute agency, you know, when it actually should be there. The, t the example everybody uses <laughs> is a tiger in the woods. Tiger in the woods. And I don't know, I don't actually, you know, right off the top of my head, I can't remember who started that. Maybe, you know, um, no, I don't, I, I got, you know, I'm, I've been digging through all this literature lately and it's just, it's just gets recycled. It's sometimes it almost feels a little bit like, um, I shouldn't say, you know, feel free to cut this, but sometimes it feels like how my undergraduate poetry advisor, I was a writing major in undergrad. She told me the world of poetry, the world of professional poetry is um, a single village on a, on a crossroads with four houses on each corner of the crossroads and they're all selling chickens. <laughs> <laughs> and that's like, there's no such thing, right? There's no such thing as a consumer of poetry. It's all poets trying to sell to each other. And sometimes some of these theories feel the same way. It's just, it, it keeps getting cycled back and forth, you know, in this chain of citations. You try and find the beginning. Yes. You can't. Okay. Um, but so the tiger example is that like, if you're, so for, so pretend that you're a, a person from 50,000 years ago and you're wandering through some sort of primeval forest and you hear a crack in the, the weeds or the, the bushes nearby. The argument is that it's better to select for humans who will, who will think that that's a, some sort of an agent like a tiger than it than than humans who will be like oh that's just a stick right um because if you err too much on the side of no any noise is just a stick or it's just a rant you know it's just something that happened then you're going to be the first one to get pounced on by a tiger and you will therefore not contribute your genes to the next generation meaning you know on the long run it's the people who are a little hyper have hyperactive agency detection devices that will survive and the argument is that this is a major contributor to our propensity to for intuiting invisible agents spirits and gods and ancestors and so forth in our environments that our, our brains are sort of constantly scaring up images of persons that maybe we can't see um, because because of this bias this is a cognitive bias towards agency agency imputation or agency inference. Um, what's missing in that, so I think many people would agree that what's missing in that story is how exactly you get from, you know, thinking that there's a tiger in the woods to like 
Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity, right? Like there's, I mean, that's, I don't want to be unfair to the, the hyperactive agency detection theory um, because many people who have written about it have been pretty clear that it's not an explanation for determinate religious beliefs, for, for specific religious beliefs. I mean, right. It's just, it's a suggestion, it's a hypothesis about why it is that our, our brains are predisposed to take seriously stories about invisible agents in the first place. So it's a little unfair to say that the had the HADD theory for thesis um, can't explain Jesus as the second person of the Trinity or Krishna as the sedu seducer of the Gopi girls or whatever story you want to talk about because it's not actually meant to do that. So trying to, trying to be fair to it. Um, okay, cool. And I actually, I was sold by that for ages, but that's actually because I didn't, I didn't really know that there were alternatives. And so, well, obviously reading in the field helped a lot. There are other things, right? There's um, minimally counterintuitive beliefs, which is mm -hmm. interesting, right? It seems like, and this I think is a little bit easier to show as a phenomena that happens for us as opposed to the had device, right? Like it's, can you test for the had device? I feel like minimally counterintuitive beliefs are something that we have seen happen over and over again in, in studies. Yeah, that's actually, so both of those points together are something I want to tie, I want to tie them up because before I move on to the MCI, minimal counterintuitiveness theory, um, the, the major failing I think with hyperactive agency detection story, I'm just going to call it story because it's somewhere, it's not really a hypothesis, it's not really a theory, it's sort of a globular um, mass of, of predictions. So anyway, um, that's for the philosophers of science to worry about. But it's so the problem with the had story is for me, uh, not, not the problem of like explaining how it produces particular beliefs in particular local or global spirits or gods or whatever, but um, that every other mobile animal should have the same bias. Kim Sterelny, a philosopher um, from Australia, recently made this point in a brilliant journal article saying, like, guys, if this is what causes religious belief, then mice, you know, I don't think he said mice, but my, like, any, any, any animal should have religious beliefs because they should all have been selected to be mm. more high, highly attuned to signs of agency. I mean, rabbits, come on, everything is out to get them, right? If you're a rabbit, you better be really, you, you're not, I mean, we can't get picked up out of the air by hawks you know, rabbits can. And so of course they should be like, well, you know, everything is a sign of agency. But when you actually, I mean, I've personally never seen rabbits outside of a Beatrix Potter book um, holding any sort of a ceremony or ritual. And it doesn't really seem like they do. So there's something left to explain, right? Like this is not unique to humans. This in every animal shares this. So why is it that we're the ones that build temples or go out and um, go out into the woods and sacrifice things before we go on our hunt or, you know, whatever. So uh, minimal counterintuitiveness is, is a good seg off of that question because it points up the fact that we need abstract representations in order to get religious religion off the ground. We need language because language allows us to talk about stuff that isn't there um, and imagine things that could not be there in a way that animal communication can't rabbit. Like, I don't know why I'm going back to rabbits, but rabbits can communicate with each other quite well. You know, they can say, you know, I'm friendly. I'm, I'm not friendly. Um, whatever. They have all kinds of messages that they can send through sounds and body language and so forth. And anybody who has a pet knows that, but animal signaling is almost completely limited to immediate somatic states or environmental questions right like so they, a dog can say there's a there's a scary thing out front right now right like go owner go check it out but it can't say owner imagine if there were a scary thing out front next november 24th it can't that you need symbolic language to do that and animals don't have it but we do right and a quick aside maybe some animals have it we're not sure there's 
there's some indication that ground um, um, prairie dogs can have have a they make different noises for very specific different things their warnings so they can make a warning that says like tall man with a gun versus like that other guy we sometimes see who never has a gun um, it's very specific so you know I'm sure people will say oh animal there's nothing that separates humans from animals blah 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 um, fine but mostly other animals don't have language and we we do as far as we know and that's what allows us to talk about things that aren't there minimal counterintuitive minimally counterintuitive stories are um, stories in which intuitive or evolved innate ontological expectations or biases are violated very slightly thus making the story more memorable in english that is to say that our brains have been again shaped by 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 evolution to um expect certain things of the world stuff will fall when it's dropped um, animals and people will move purposively in order to accomplish their goals and camp solid things can't move through each other you can't put a rock through a wall and so forth excuse me dead things stay dead that's one so religious stories goes the theory are those which violate a few but not too many of these intuitive expectations all at once so jesus christ was um, a man who walked around and ate there's lots in the bible about him eating and drinking and you know being a human but then when he died he came back so that's just that's i mean there's other there's other, there's plenty of other violations of intuitively um sort of intrinsic intuitions in in Christianity and other religions, but that's one, right? And so the idea is that story becomes sort of intuitively compelling or attention grabbing as the phrase that's often used. And they're, and it's actually a memory-based theory, MCI theory. Uh, it argues that we remember concepts and narratives that are minimally counterintuitive more easily than we remember those that are not in, uh, not at all intuitive that are so counterintuitive that they're just random or those that are banal and don't violate any intuitive expectations. So an example that's often used is, is, you know, you hear stories about a God who has the shape of a person, but can also see into other people's minds and lives forever. But you almost never hear about a story about a God who is 75 feet high and walks through walls and lives forever, but then dies every Thursday and, um, can see through my mind, but not yours, right? Like when you, when you multiply the number of ontological violations, it becomes intractable to memorize. So there's the, the hypothesis is, is that there's kind of a sweet spot as an attractor basin, right? Where, where there's the optimal number of violations for a story to be intuitively compelling and people pass that story on and it spreads and, um, you know, conquers large swaths of the Near East or wherever. Yeah, there's almost a sense in which the MCI hypothesis isn't about, well, it is, can perhaps be in a sense about where religious belief, quote unquote, comes from, but it's actually more like a constraint on the shapes that they take, right? Um, yeah, yeah it's, it's, an, it's an epidemiological model of religion it's not an ideological model of religion it doesn't it doesn't make any postulates about where religion comes from it's just exactly it, it's it says or it suggests ways in which religion spreads and ways that it probably wouldn't spread or conditions under which it wouldn't spread right which actually marks an important difference between this theory and the one we were just talking about and other theories which very explicitly claim that religion as a phenomenon evolved because religion is adaptive. I, I have never found those theories particularly persuasive, but I'm in Europe and in Europe, people tend to find those kinds of theories less persuasive. Um, but th that's another group, correct? Uh, the selectionist theorists. Yeah. Um, that's a good, so before we move on there, I just also want to say about MCI theory that one of the critiques that's been leveled against it is that it's not clear which types of violations um, are really violations of deep inborn 
evolutionarily innate intuitions and which are actually just violations of culturally schematic intuitions or cultural schemas. And so that's the, that's the difference between a very deep level, you know, mm-hmm. age old brain thing and, and just concepts that we've gotten from our culture. Um, it, that, that critique highlights the fact that both MCI, as you pointed out, both MCI and had both the MCI and the had theories are byproduct theories They're, They argue that religion, religion, which is not really a thing, right? It's just a, a name that we give to yes. mustard stuff. Um, sp- spreads or, you know, seems to hitch a ride on the human mind because of features of the human mind. It, it exploits biases uh, that we have in order to, to spread through populations and, um, and gain traction. Sure. So that is counterposed to, like you, as you're talking, as you mentioned, uh, adaptationist models. And for the, for the sake of time, I'll just kind of blend together cultural evolutionist models, cultural evolution models, and by pro, uh, sorry, adaptationist models strictly, mm-hmm. because they both posit that religion has adaptive functions, and that is that that selection for those adaptive func- adaptive functions has been why it is a thing, why it's everywhere. And um, you're right that I think people who are less people, right? Like folks who live in places where religion is not a salient are possibly less likely to think that this is a um, compelling story. But the story goes that religion by um, hooking people into common value systems and ritual patterns, patterns of ritual behavior, um, increases the amount of in-group cooperation that's possible and then allows for, you know, all the benefits that come from cooperative, a cooperative species like ours. So, um, for example, costly signaling theory suggests that, that, that religion is costly, right? Like almost one thing that, you know, it's hard to talk about religion in the West because we don't have much of it. And, um, and Protestantism, which is the you know the traditional religion of the United States and England and most of Western Europe, um, is is could, you could really think of it as a religion that has attempted to get rid of religion. Mm. You know, it's, it it gave gave up all the old rituals and as much of the old institutional structure as possible. And even now today, it keeps doing that. It's it's Protestantism keeps the, the Reformation never ends. And so there's um, 500 years of history behind this sort of incomprehension of the costliness of religion among Westerners, among, you know, at least in the Anglo-American world. But religion in a lot of places is really costly. I mean, you know, the the Taipusam ritual in uh, Mauritius, which you probably read about, Demetrius Sigalatis and other other folks in the anthropology, cognitive anthropology of religion, have done work down there. Uh, that that festival has people skewering their bodies with with sharp things and carrying around heavy floats and um, doing things to their bodies that are really intense. Like it would look like abuse to people walking around the streets in Boston and uh, or or Oxford and people do it again and again. They do it every year. It's not like people are like, Oh, that really sucked when I shoved that sword through my cheek. I'm never going to do that stuff again. No, they do it again and again and again every year. And the question is why, you know, (laughs) it's from, from a rationalist standpoint, you're like, why would you do this stuff to your body? Um, It's not adaptive. It it seems like the opposite of adaptive. It makes religion look like the least adaptive thing out there. But adaptationist logic in, in evolution encourages us to think, okay, if we see something repeated over and over across contexts, then it's, is there, is there a function that they could be serving? Is there a reason that that behavior could be conserved? So stepping carefully here, it is not the case that people in all sorts of different cultures shove swords through their cheeks. That's, that's limited to a relatively few, although more than you think, um, number of cultures, but it is the case that people commit costly sacrifices in the name of 
posited supernatural beings or um, ancestors or gods or other things like that all over the world. Um, there's really, I don't think there's any such thing as a culture that doesn't have some sort of invisible or non, uh, non-normal human-like agents. One anthropologist calls them meta-human agents. I think that's really helpful. Um, and that don't require some sort of obligatory behavior from people. Hmm. That often takes the, the case of the form of sacrifices or taboos, you know, don't eat this, don't eat aardvark at this time of year. You know, maybe that's all it is, but that's still a sacrifice because that's a potential food source that you have to give up because of your religious beliefs or your tribal beliefs. And why is it that people do that everywhere? Why, why, why do humans do this? Gorillas don't do this. You know, I mean, if wolves don't do this. If there's meat to be had, wolves will eat it. Right. It's not like that. That's a really crucial distinguisher between people and other animals is this, this willingness to take things that could be consumed or opportunities that could be exploited and to put them out of bounds. Um, as a matter of social agreement, not as a matter of incapacity, right? So to digress one more second, a lot of chimpanzee bands, all of the all of the lower ranking males would love to mate with the top quality, you know, female ladies, female ladies, all the chimpanzee ladies, right? But they they don't largely not because it's a taboo or an agreement, but because they they know they'll get the crap kicked out of them by the alpha males if they do. So it's it's what one anthropologist calls a transactional relationship. It's, it's, it's not dependent on norms, but we have norms that say, no, you don't, you don't get, you don't make romantic overtures to that person because she's married. That's it's, it's, it's a normative thing. It's out of bounds, not because somebody will beat you up, but because it's wrong. And um, why do we do this? Why do we make these kind of sacrifices? Costly signaling theory in the evolutionary anthropology of religion says that costly signals are what stabilize cooperation they, because they, within an in-group because they are credible signals of commitment to the normative system of the culture. You know, you don't, I have, I have friends who are culturally Jewish, but not really believers who have said, you know, it's just really hard to fast for the high holidays when you just don't believe, you know, it's, it's, you think it's kind of dumb. So you, you try and then you stop when you are really committed, you become, it becomes easier to do the difficult and get um, costly things. So, and that when you're in your community, your religious community, whether it's a Protestant church or a Jewish temple or um, a hunter gatherer band, and you see other people all doing the, the costly things that are required of them or expected of them because of the supernatural system, you think, okay, this is a group of people who are going to do this things that we're all expected to do. If we get in a fight, I can depend on that guy to back me up, right? If, if it's time to band together for a hunt or if I'm out of food, I know that she'll help me out because she'll have food, right? So that's the suggestion. That's, that's basically the argument from the adaptationist point of view is that religious rituals counterintuitively, not, not like minimally counterintuitiveness, but they sort of counterintuitively cause us to band together precisely because they um, get us committed to stuff that can't be proved and create in-group, out-group boundaries. So, you know, if you're walking around a cosmopolitan city and you see somebody else who's wearing the same religious attire as you, you say, okay, that's somebody who shares my tribe. Okay, maybe I'll trust them a little bit more. So this is sort of one of the drivers of ethnic distinctions and so forth, which, which means that when people make the claim that religion breaks people up into groups, they're not wrong, you know, but there's a real question of whether or not humans would exist at all if we didn't break up into groups. That's kind of what makes us what we are. Is, is symbolic social groups. Okay, so cultural evolution is complicated, but it, like other theories of quote-unquote religious belief, right, it and other theories of belief are perhaps in some senses necessary, but they're definitely all insufficient, right? They are not comprehensive insofar as they can't really account for all of the things that we see, right? Because you mentioned about how the had device can't account for pretty much anything else that we see in religion and all these sorts of things. And you, well, let me just ask you this. Uh, <laughs> what, what, are they, what are they missing, you know, about us uh, as, a, as a species and one that enacts all of these symbolic behaviors? 
you can just answer my theory if you want to. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. I mean, I'm sure my theory is wrong too. Um, maybe. Or maybe, yeah, I don't know. It's, maybe it's right about some things. I think that um, adaptationist theories have not always done a great job of explaining two things. One of them is the tendency for religious belief to center on meta-human agents, spirits and gods. Why is that? Why, why, do we, why do we have the particular focus on beings, personal beings that are like us, but that are not necessarily present in the same way that we are? Because it seems plausible that you could get commitment on the basis of other kinds of um, non-falsifiable beliefs. An example is, you know, um, like a sports team, you know, people, people rally around the symbols of the Boston Red Sox, and that's a pair of socks, like the symbol is a pair of socks. Right? <laughs> so there's, and they get and they get really rabid too about it, you know, don't don't walk around Kenmore Square in a baseball in a Yankees cap um, in the fall, like it's, it's a real in group out group distinction. So if we know that we can make in group out group distinctions based on non agential or agentic symbols, why is it that spirits and gods tend to centralize in religious worlds? And they also, I mean, adaptation accounts haven't always, some of them have, this is, but haven't always dealt with the maladaptive um, consequences of religion. Like why, why is that um, people blow each other up over these things or, you know, why, um, why people can persist in praying about something when it, it's, but then not actually go out and try and change the world in order to accomplish their goal. Um, to be completely fair, that's not the job. That's not what adaptationist theories have gone out to do. And Rich Sosis, who's one of the major um, progenitors of cost signaling theory in, in the study of religion, has explicitly studied the role that religious symbols and rituals play in intergroup warfare or intergroup conflict. So. It, that's that's out there. It's just not the focus for a lot of that work. And the um, had and MCI theories really can't account for the love for commitment, the level of commitment that people have to these beliefs. It's not like we just suddenly think like, oh, there's a spirit. You know, my brain has a little spurt, and then I believe that there's an invisible agency in the in the rushes nearby me. It's more. I mean, that's not what religion is. Is it, religion is is costly commitment to these beliefs. And most of the people who write about cost, about um, minimal counter, minimally counterintuitive stories and hyperactive agency detection would completely admit that. And many of them have tried to link those things together. We just, I just don't think they've always succeeded in a way that really does justice to the full weirdness of religion. I mean, there's also the sense that like religion is really weird mm -hmm. and trying to put it in an explanatory box is doomed to failure. Um, in, in some sense, that doesn't mean that it doesn't create useful understandings. I mean, I'm a, I do empirical and quantitative work on religion. I'm trying to do explanatory and reductionist work, full stop. That's totally fine. It's just, you're never going to, there's always going to be like things that, that spurt out the sides because it's a human phenomenon and humans are weird. Religion is weird. So um, a colleague of mine, John Shaver, who's at the University of Otago in New Zealand, recently published an article in an innovative, this cool innovative journal called uh, Evolutionary Studies in Imaginative Culture, which tries to link evolution and the humanities, um, which is not an easy thing to do in the contemporary academy. We published this article arguing that um, supernatural beliefs or beliefs in, in gods and spirits are so widespread in religious and all cultural traditions um, because they are essentially roles, they're, they're role templates that don't have or don't require occupants. And that's kind of a, a bit of an about face from what we were just talking about. So um, to give a little background, the anthropologist Maurice Block wrote a famous, I mean, famous for, you know, an academic article back in 2000, whatever, 2008, saying that, arguing that religion is essentially what we mean when we talk about this thing, religion, is what he calls the transcendental social world. And he doesn't mean transcendental like existing in a different plane. Um, he means imagined, 
It's the world that we imagine. And it, it consists of all the roles that we play or that we expect others to play that stay stable, even as individual people, anthropologists call them incumbents, move in and out of those roles. And the symbolic identities that um, can be transferred from person to person, right? So like, you know, this person could be a nurse for five years and then maybe go on to be um, an accountant, you know, and it's the same person, but is occupied in different roles. And then somebody else comes to occupy that nurse role after they leave and the role remains the same. So there's this transcendental world of imagined symbolic identities that we share when we're a part of a culture. And all over the world, those, the way that we make those roles happen is we ritualize them. That's, that's how roles come to be. Um, you wouldn't recognize a nurse as a nurse unless he or she were wearing, right, like a, a, the right uniform and behaving like a nurse and um, performing the actions that a nurse would perform. The same thing for a professor, you know, there's all kinds of things that professors do. I don't know, like wearing a tweed jet or whatever this is, um, herringbone coat, right? Like we, we do things that say like, I'm an academic, you know, and, um, <laughs> and nobody would, nobody would think like, oh, that guy's in finance, you know, <laughs> like we, we symbolize what we are and we do it through impractical means. I'm not, this is not, what we're wearing is not necessary to be an academic. We could be academic. We could write academic stuff and talk academic talk just as easily wearing like Abercrombie and Fitch or if they're still around. I was in grad school a long time. Um, so, you know, there, the point is that ritual is impractical for observers, right? Just like we were talking about with the, the type of sound ritual where people are sticking themselves with sharp things. That seems impractical. Well, so is wearing you know, a, a tweed jacket with arm, um, uh, with elbow patches to show that you're a professor. It's not painful in the same way, but it's not, it's not nece necessary to get the goal accomplished. So um, the thing about the transcendental world is that it, um, it allows us to treat each other in ways that aren't a direct reflection of our capacities or our transactional abilities, by which we mean you can treat somebody like an elder, even if they're starting to get a little senile. I, I experience this, you know, with, with elder people in my family, you know, there's a point where you start to realize that they, they're not, you know, they don't come up with memories as quickly maybe as they used to, and they have to stab around for words a little bit. And when that happens, people become less, those people, you know, become less kind of, utilitarian important in a utilitarian way to the family group you know you're not going to go to grandma to ask her for help um you know negotiating a, a way to get out of you know a dispute you're having with a neighbor that she's known for a long time if she's not as there as she used to be mentally and at, so people can become less important in a utilitarian way and yet we will still treat them with the respect potentially not everybody does this but we can treat them with the same respect that they were owed they should be owed on the basis of just their role which is elder and this is why human groups are often led by people who are not the biggest the strongest the tallest and the the most dominant you know yeah okay presidents tend to be taller than the average person but um like Barack Obama isn't was was not somebody who you would think would be able to beat up everybody that he met in a fight. You know, he's, he's, he's a professor. And the fact that we can elect somebody who is, whose strength is their, their intellect and their, um, their social skills to a, an office of that importance and then treat them, you know, with some many exceptions, right? Many people didn't treat Barack Obama that respectfully, but we, the, the ritual still happened. He was still treated like president by, virtually everybody, um, you know, in the White House. That doesn't, and in a lot of like tribal cultures, you know, the leader is like an older guy, an older man who, who can't hold his own, who couldn't hold his own in a fight with young men anymore, but people look up to and respect him anyway. Okay, so the, this is really unusual about humans. We have what one, what Joe Henrik, a researcher, uh, evolutionary uh, human biologist at Harvard calls um, a prestige hierarchy. So we can respect each other, not on the basis just of what we can do to each other physically, but how much we respect each other. And you can respect people based on the roles that they have, not just their intrinsic traits.
Maurice Bloch argues that this is what religion is. Because religion is the, the source. Um, that's not quite right. He wouldn't say it's the source. He would say they're identical. But the, what the realms that we call religion and what we might call the, the social, the world of social roles are totally linked together in the vast majority of human societies. Um, to use an example that probably seems offensive to many Western ears, in a lot of Hindu uh, families, the, the, the man of the house is treated in ex almost exactly the same way that an icon of, the God is of a god is treated. There's the same sort of respectful behaviors and deference, right? So Maurice Bloch argues, like, look, this is, this is religious behavior. We, we treat roles in, in ways that are not really distinguishable from the ways that we treat gods and spirits. Um, the difference is, this is what John and I are arguing, that gods and spirits don't have physical incumbents most of the time. There are exceptions, such as in Haitian voodoo, where there are spirit possession um, rites, right? Where, but for the most part, you know, if, if um, a Hindu housewife goes to pay veneration to a shrine of Krishna, like, it's a, it's a statue, you know, and Krishna doesn't interact in the same way. So what's important about that is that gods and spirits that we interact with in that way are sort of like grandma in that they are not utilitarian players on the social scene. You can't get stuff out of them in the same way. You can't threaten them. You can't, you can't bargain with them. Um, they don't, they don't, uh, they're not going to hit you over the head if you insult them, you know, at, right at that moment, you know. Um, so there's no, there's little transactional incentive to behave properly to um, a god that you worship or an ancestor that you venerate. You don't get much out of it practically right then and there. Instead, what you get, John and I argue, is a habitual inculcation into the norms of your transcendental social world. You, by, by venerating the ancestors in the way that they are supposed to be at, venerated, for example, in a Chinese village, you know, um, you are showing sort of by definition that you are willing to treat people, or you are, you are willing to treat things according to their transcendental roles, their templates, um, in circumstances where there's no utilitarian there's no direct utilitarian trade-off so we think that this is part of the reason why um, meta human agents like spirits gods and ancestors tend to gravitate towards the center of transcendental social schemes it's almost like if you imagine a network of all the possible nodes or roles that you could play in a society at the center are the ones that nobody actually ever plays personally as a, as a flesh and blood person because having that empty space, sort of, right, that, 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 like, that empty set uh, in the middle of the, it's not really an empty set, that's a bad mathematical metaphor, but right, like in the middle of this network um, is what stabilizes the rest of the network because it, it requires behavior, deontic, that is normative behavior without a utilitarian trade-off from everybody in order to be sustained. Mm. So if you don't sustain your transcendental social figures, then the rest of your, the rest of your network is, um, I would say, open to utilitarian mismanagement or exploitation. So does, does that make the theory, in a sense, it sounds very functionalist? Mm, yeah. So it, do you see it as sort of existing because it functionally organizes communities so well? Um. In some sense, yeah. So in that sense, you and I might disagree. I am more of an adaptationist just in the sense that I think that there's, it's difficult to explain the amount of energy and investment that people put into rituals mm -hmm. all over the world um, otherwise at least in a naturalistic framework. If, if you allow for supernatural explanations, then the whole calculus changes. And all of a sudden it's like, well, yeah, people do it because otherwise the spirits mess you up, right? But if we're, if we're bracketing that, that explanation, we're saying like, this is a naturalist framework, then it's really hard 
it's, it's hard to see from a, a byproduct standpoint where all that energy is getting paid for. You know, energy, energy is the crucial question in evolution. Uh, one of the crucial questions, right? Like if you're expending energy on a structure or a behavior, mm-hmm. it's got to be paid for from somewhere. And if there's no, if there's no, if there's no payoff in terms of fitness, then it seems um, unlikely that a costly behavior or structure would be retained. Mm. Does there have to be a payoff if it's something that, well, could the payoff be simply, well, I am in a really crappy situation right now, but this God is promising me something right that my disease will go away or the famine will go away or what have you right and so is the payoff simply the hope or the solace that comes from this sort of thing or of course there's all that um existentialist thinking about some sort of staving off right and so you could look at it in very pragmatic terms or you could look at it in very existential terms but could a payoff be something that is just a some sort of psychological benefit well, that's a different accounting system. It's right. possible. I mean, it's possible. Yeah, people do get psychological benefits from religion, and some people get psychological. Um, yes, absolutely. People, you know, people well, it, right. In that sense, I would look at it more as something that's Foucault. Could I say Foucauldian? Right, something that is just uh, real, humans are compelled by powers and by hopes and fears and so i see i tend to see religion as a by as something that is somewhat adaptive but also a byproduct or really intensely leveraged on us and by us because we are so embedded in these networks of power yeah i mean i i think that that's sort of in that's implicit right in the idea of a transcendental social framework where does that where does the transcendental social framework come from it's normative Anybody who's ever tried to lead anything knows that people often resist norms. So you have, so if you want everybody to be on the same page about what it means to be a nurse or a president or an elder, then in some way you need to have some coercive, um, you know, tools. Um, That's, that's, you know, that seems amoral, but just looking at it from an anthropological point of view, like, there is, there's, it's hard to get everybody on the same page about things without power. And what Maurice Block is arguing is that the transcendental social framework is something that people are basically on the same page about, even if they would rather not be. It's not like, I mean, this is, that's Foucauldian in the sense that there's all kinds of resistance to it. People are constantly, you know, challenging the transcendental social framework. People don't treat elders the way that they deserve or they deserve according to the norms of the system. People um, push back in different ways but there's a sense in which if a sufficient if a critical mass of people upholds the norms then then everybody will recognize everybody still recognizes like oh i ought to treat that person that way even if then they don't and there's a big difference between a feeling of i ought to treat that person that way but i choose not to and i don't even recognize that i'm supposed to treat that person that way in the one you have a tra- you have a stable transcendental social framework, and the other it's gone. So yeah, there's power structures are a big part of this. I just I don't think that's incompatible with. I mean, I've 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 thought for it's quite a long time that functionalist social explanations and critical social explanations actually imply one another. Mm. You know, uh, they they're often described as being at odds, but I think that I have a relatively tragic view of the human condition, and I don't think. I don't think it's incorrect to say that the, the social processes and structures that sustain us are exactly the ones that also oppress us. And there's actually no way out of that bind. I happen to agree with you. <laughs> I happen to agree with you. I mean, it's just, it's, it's very funny. And, and I know we're running on time, so we should go, but it's it's really remarkable how we sort of have this impression, or maybe it's not because we're in the West and Protestantism, as you so eloquently put it, has been stripping itself of all of these religious things. But we tend to way underestimate how hard and punishing, you know, quote unquote, religion can be. And in pretty much all of our institutions, right, there is there is a buy-in and there is a there is a cost. Yeah, 
and there's and there's you know you're either you either pay the cost or you stay outside and if you pay the cost then you pay the cost and then you know you have that that um de- debit that you've just e- experienced or if you don't pay the cost then you're outside and then if you're outside um humans don't live on the outside of the social world you know we we i couldn't you know the famous essay about nobody that no from the 60s or 50s that nobody knows how to make a pencil I can't remember who wrote it. Um, it's a, it's this, it's an essay about what all goes into making a simple number two pencil. And it is so complex, right? Like the, the, the logistics and the supply chains and the fabrication process involved mean that there is no single person on the face of the earth who knows all everything that it would take to make even a pencil. And that was 50 years ago. And now think about, you know, the information infrastructure and things like that. We we're completely dependent on each other. So we can't live outside of, our social worlds and our social worlds can't exist without transcendental social frameworks. So um, we, we are, that's our situation. That is our situation. Um, I want to let you go. I'm wondering if you have any um, last reflections or if you want to talk at all about how your ideas sort of impact the way we see and think about religion before we head off. Sure. Um, for one thing, I'm not sure that the theory that John and I put up in this article is testable right now. We'd have to, you know, it, it, it makes some similar predictions as both byproduct and adaptationist theories. It's, it's an argument that gods and spirits are essentially an inevitable byproduct of the ways that our social brains function. But it also argues that we, you know, that, that they crew, they, form or they play this stabilizing role in our sense of what we ought to normatively do Mm. which which has difficult implications for i think atheists who or activists who would say that we can live without religion because in in a sense if you follow the logic of argument out we would say if there's if there are no beings personal beings that anybody's paying veneration to then the system of norms is going to become unstable. That doesn't mean people will become immoral in the sense of beating each other up all the time. It means that the the arbitrary cultural norms that define discrete local human groups would be um, would would be in danger of dissolving. So, um, can we live without that? I don't know. Um, we'll see. I you know in one in one sense I think that the the uptick of um, belief in sort of paranormal things in some parts of, of Northern and Western Europe makes me think that, you know, as, as Sweden has gone from being pretty Christian to being very, very non-Christian over just a couple of generations, you know, people say, Oh, humans, people need something. They're going to believe in something. And I've, I've wondered whether, um, a belief in ghosts or UFOs is sort of like, the human organism trying to find something to pin its norms on say, okay, I need, I like my society. I want to keep it going. I want to keep it going. Where do I, where do I anchor my norms in a way that isn't um, Mm. vulnerable to trans transactional or utilitarian cost benefit analyses. As far as what this says about religion. um, I think it says that, like I said, it's very weird. And one thing that it, that it adds to the conversation is the creative role of, of um, the sacrifice that, that is at the, the, not the core, but it, it plays such a critical role in a lot of what religion is. Um, the way, and when I say the creative role, I mean that taboos and sacrifices and, you know, sacred things that are kind of like off limits or that you, you know, you don't you agree not to do or you do them because not because they get you benefits but because you're just supposed to are how we produce things like um plan groups or moieties or other things that structure our social world and it's that structuring i think that is often um hard to see or or to realize is an important thing to explain for protestants because protestants prefer to see the social world as unstructured but mo- but they're all, it's always structured. There's always categorization going on. You say that that you you guys are the fox clan and we're the bear clan and you can marry our sisters and we can marry your sisters, but neither one of us can marry those guys' sisters, right? Like that's but we're all one tribe. 
that's how most human life is, is these like variegated structuring and, and kin, kin structures and so forth all over, all riddled throughout society, the society. And that's an important thing to explain. I, we, we think that our theory helps explain, at least put the cognitive science of religion back in contact with that, that mm. question. And hopefully we'll help people to um, at least get thinking about how to cognitively explain the deep structuring of human societies. I like, I like the close with the teachable moment, you know, hopefully we will someday. Here's our teachable moment. That's okay. My life is closing with the teachable moment. So (laughs) can't, I can't, I can't resist its allure. Um, Okay, great. So I'm going to let everybody go. Thank you so much, Connor. This has been very enlightening. Thanks, Stephanie. It was great to talk to you and um, good to be here. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you, um, everybody tuning in. Thank you also um, very much. I will be back, of course, as ever uh, next week. Okay, take care.